Well, happy Easter, everyone. Yeah, it's good to see you here. I know Nate mentioned this up front. It's just good to see everybody dressed up. You know, we're, <laughs> we're a pretty casual church Sunday in, Sunday out. Um, Easter is a fun Sunday, um, except when you're, you know, wrestling and forcing your kids to <laughs> wear nice clothes. <laughs> My kids mostly show up in sweatpants and muddy shoes and whatever, just because, you know, you got to pick your fights, right? Uh, but this is the one Sunday of the year that they're going to look good. I remember um, growing up, going to our church, and, you know, it was a little bit more formal, a little bit more traditional, uh, but Easter was, you know, I got special Easter clothes every year, and I'll never forget one Sunday, uh, I think I was probably about 10 years old, had my, you know, brand new pair of slacks, had brand new pair of loafers that looked really good. My dad polished them up uh, the night before. But, you know, as a 10-year-old, I didn't care about those things. All I cared about was hanging out with my friends after the church service in our parking lot. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget the look on my parents' face when I came inside, when we were getting ready to go. I had a hole in my new slacks. I had, uh, you know, scuffs all over my penny loafers. Um, that was an Easter to remember, that's, that's for sure. I don't, obviously, I know we have a lot of folks visiting this morning and, and uh, parents from out of town, family from out of town, friends, and we're so thankful that you're here worshiping with us this morning. This may be Easter service number one for you. It may be Easter service number 30, 40, or 50 for some of you. But the question remains every year, why do we celebrate Easter? Why is this Sunday a special Sunday in our calendar? Is Easter Sunday just an excuse to dress up and, and look nice and get your family pictures taken and have a nice lunch together? Is, uh, is, is an excuse just to listen to the story, Easter story and feel good about ourselves, feel inspired and energized in our Christian faith? Uh, is it so churches can get a lot of people through the doors and have a good offering on Sunday, on Easter Sunday? Today is no different than any other Sunday. This gathering is no different than any other church gathering that we do throughout the year. This service today isn't much different than the service we had last Sunday. It won't be much different than the service that we have next Sunday. So I think a better question for us to ask this morning is not, you know, why do we celebrate Easter? The better question is, why is what we celebrate on Easter important? Why is what we are singing about reading scripture about, talking about this morning. Why is that so important to us and to this world? For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we have been over the last few months working through during our teaching times here on Sunday, the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. The first half of the book of Daniel is a historical narrative. And it's where we find some of the most famous, you know, Sunday school stories in the Bible. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall. The second half of the book of Daniel is a series of visions and dreams that Daniel had. 
And we call this part apocalyptic literature. And I won't go into all of that because we've, we've been through that before. Um, but it does have a different meaning in the scriptures than in our modern parlance. In the Bible, apocalyptic refers to a, a moment when God revealed something that was previously hidden. It is when God pulled back the curtain and allowed an individual or a group of people, usually through dreams and visions, to see reality from his perspective. You might think it's odd to spend Easter Sunday morning in the book of Daniel, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 10 this morning, and we're going to look at another apocalyptic vision that Daniel had. But in Daniel 10, what we're going to see is a glimpse, a glimpse of why we celebrate and why we worship this morning. We're going to see the reality of the conflict between God and his enemies and the victory won by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we'll have Daniel chapter 10 up here on the screen, I believe. There's also some Bibles uh, in and around your chairs if you want to use those. But if you haven't already turned to Daniel 10, go ahead and do so. And I'll be starting in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel who was called Belteshazzar. In its message, its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face on the ground. We find Daniel at the beginning of chapter 10, mourning, fasting, even to the point where he's not lose, using lotion on his skin. And so his skin is exposed to the dry, arid climates of Babylon. Why is Daniel mourning? Why is in, he in this state of despair? Well, when we back up and we look at the chapters where we've come from, in chapter 7, we left, we, at the end of chapter 7, Daniel says that he was deeply troubled. At the end of chapter 8, he declares that he's worn out, that he's exhausted. 
In chapter 9 that we looked at last week, we find Daniel wearing sackcloth and ashes in repentance over the sins of his people. These visions of future events that Daniel has received up to this point, visions where he's in which he sees his people continuing to be judged for their sin, for their evil, experiencing the persecution from evil rulers over them. Last week, Daniel, in confession and repentance over Israel's rebellion and idolatry and petitioning God to give relief from his judgment, Daniel was beat down. He was heavy. He was exhausted. And again, he's preparing himself through fasting to hear from God again. He's making himself available to receive understanding. Daniel wants to know what is going to happen. God, what are you going to do? What will happen to my people? And in this vision, Daniel's standing on the bank of the Tigris River. And he sees a man. A man dressed in linen, a belt of gold, a body like a sparkling jewel with a fiery appearance and a voice like a multitude of voices. This is a similar description of a man that Daniel's contemporary, the prophet Ezekiel, wrote about in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's also very similar to the description that the apostle John writes about, a man that he saw in his revelation. So could this man that Daniel is looking at, that Daniel sees in his vision, could this be God himself? Those with Daniel didn't see this vision. But the magnitude of it was so great that they felt terror just standing next to Daniel. They were terrified and they fled and they hid themselves. And Daniel finds himself alone staring at this vision of this powerful, glorious man. And all the strength drained from his body. And he fell face down to the ground. Let's keep reading in verse 10. And a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel... You who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the visions concerning a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed my face toward the ground and I was speechless. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips. And I opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, (coughs) me, 
I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. And I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said to me, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael. There's a lot going on here, a lot of moving parts, a lot of, a lot of dialogue, and a lot of interesting people show up. A hand touched Daniel while he was laying face down in the dirt, and a voice spoke to him, don't be afraid. That touch gave him strength, and that voice told him, don't be afraid. It's kind of unclear here in how our English translation of this passage is written. But I think that these are two different people that Daniel is experiencing here. He sees this vision of a man. And then he receives the touch that gives him strength. But he also hears a message. And I think this is from another. A messenger. A messenger sent by God. This messenger told Daniel that he was sent by God to answer Daniel's questions, to give Daniel understanding about the future. A future that we have seen up to this point in the book of Daniel, a future that is controlled by the sovereignty of God. This is a theme that we keep coming back to over and over again in the book of Daniel, that despite present appearances, God is in control. And this same God who is in control of the present is also the same God who controls the future. And this messenger is here to tell Daniel what God is going to do in the future. He is in control. But what's interesting here is that this messenger tells Daniel, I meant to get here sooner. I was trying to get here a lot quicker, but I was impeded. I was resisted by the prince of Persia. And this prince was intent on keeping the revelation of God from Daniel. This prince is apparently an evil prince. Because he doesn't want Daniel to hear what God has to tell him. But this prince is also a powerful prince. So powerful that another prince, the chief prince in our translation, someone named Michael, who we know from later is the chief angel of God's army, had to come to this messenger's aid. Who is this prince of Persia? Well, he's not human. 
He's not human. A human being couldn't resist a messenger of God this way. A human being could not fight and engage the, the chief angel of God in this way. So who is this prince of Persia that kept the revelation, the truth of God, from getting to Daniel? Back in the fall, we did some teaching around spiritual beings that a foundation of our understanding of what God is doing in this world is understanding that there is a world that we don't see. There is a spiritual world that stands behind the events taking place in this world. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read these words. When the Most High God gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided up all mankind, He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. The first thing we see in that, those couple of verses is that God has chosen a specific people, a specific place for his inheritance. The people of Israel. The people of Jacob. But all the other nations, all the other peoples of the earth, this, these verses tell us, God has given... To the sons of God. The sons of God. This is a whole other message that we could get into. But for time's sake, the sons of God, what we see throughout the scripture as they are referred to, are supernatural beings who ruled over nations, geographic regions, and fought spiritually on behalf of human kingdoms. These were created spiritual beings who were created to worship their creator and to do his will. In other uh, passages in the Old Testament, we see these supernatural beings referred to as a divine council or an assembly. And the picture we get in places like Isaiah chapter 6, where God is seated, where Isaiah sees this vision of God seated on his throne. And all of these uh, supernatural divine beings around him declaring day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's this picture of God seated, seated on his throne, surrounded by a staff team, a council who are in discussion with God and carrying out God's plans over all that He has created. But somewhere along the way, some of these divine beings rebelled against God's authority and they became God's enemies. And these sons of God that were meant to carry out God's intentions and His will to rule spiritually over what God had created as his representatives. They began to influence nations and people groups that they ruled over, leading them into idolatry and into injustice. The prince of Persia is one of these. A ruler 
over this empire. Spiritually standing behind the rulers, the human rulers, the kings of the Persian Empire. What we see here in Daniel 10 is a glimpse of a spiritual conflict. A spiritual battle. What this messenger tells Daniel is, I had to fight with this prince of Persia. And I'm going, after I tell you what God has sent me to tell you, I'm going to have to go back and engage with this prince of Persia. There's another prince that's coming. The prince of Greece. And he is going to have to be dealt with as well. Over the next few weeks, we are going to look specifically at the message that was sent to Daniel. But for now, I want to focus on these cosmic powers at war with God. I want to connect it in the remainder of our time to what we are celebrating here this morning and the reality that we live in as followers of Jesus, as people in the kingdom of God. As you scan through the Old Testament, it's not hard to notice that God's people, the Israelites, are constantly at war. They're constantly engaged in conflict, battle after battle, against nation after nation. But as you dig in and you see what's actually going on in these conflicts, you will see that Israel was a tool of God's judgment on evil nations. That God was addressing the idolatry, the immorality, the injustice of these nations. And Israel and their army and their weapons of warfare were his tool of judgment. Israel had to seek God's wisdom before they went into battle. God didn't give them carte blanche to fight whoever they wanted to fight, whenever they wanted to fight, for whatever reason they wanted to fight. They had to seek his wisdom. They had to divest themselves of all their advantages. You remember maybe the story of Gideon. God whittled down his army to 300 men. They carried their symbols of worship into battle with them like the Ark of the Covenant, that the priests would carry on to the battlefield as Israel fought. And then after the battle, when the victory was won, they would sing songs of praises to God. Their warfare was an act of worship. God is portrayed in picture as a warrior against evil. These were God's battles. And God was the one fighting. God was the one bringing about their victory. This Old Testament focus is primarily on these human battles between Israel and the other nations around them. But Daniel 10 exposes the spiritual reality behind these human battles. The reason that wars are fought here on this earth is because there's a war going on in the heavenly realms. There's a war being waged against God. God is at war with spiritual forces who stand behind these human conflicts. And this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't surprise us. 
when we read these words from Genesis 3. God speaking to the snake, the serpent in the garden. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Behind Adam and Eve's rebellion was God's most powerful enemy. This is where the earthly conflict begins in the scriptures. And in spiritual terms, this conflict is understood by this curse here. You will bruise his heel. He will strike your head. On one side, we see the serpent, the snake, the enemy of God, and all those who would follow him. And on the other We see God and all those who bend their knee to him. Warfare. It's a weird topic for Easter Sunday morning, isn't it? This is not normally what we talk about here. When Christians start talking about warfare, we should get uncomfortable. We should. We don't like talking about God and war. We don't know what to do with it. Don't know what to do with our God who stands behind war. But folks, we cannot understand what God has, is, and will do in this world apart from the war he's engaged in. And we can't understand the cross or the empty tomb apart from seeing our God as a warrior. As a warrior, the messenger was sent to Daniel with the truth about the future. That God was fighting on behalf of his people. That God would, at some point, defeat evil, bring justice, liberate his people, and establish his kingdom. This was a promise, and this was the hope that God's people lived with. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation. And when we open the pages of the New Testament, God's people are still looking for this. God's people are still looking for their God to defeat evil and to establish his kingdom. The words of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 reflect this. John proclaiming to the people, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes someone who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Whoa. John the Baptist's message was a continuation of this Old Testament hope. This hope for a divine warrior who will bring evil to justice. John said he's coming. He's coming. He's coming soon. And when John recognized Jesus, when Jesus stepped in to the 
to the Jordan River to be baptized, John recognized that Jesus was this warrior. That this was the man who had been promised. This was God himself. But not too long after that, John found himself arrested and in prison and started questioning, is Jesus really the guy? Because the messages that John was getting about what Jesus was doing, there was no fire. There was no threshing and winnowing for it. There was no violent justice being brought to evil. Instead, what John heard was that Jesus was healing the sick. That Jesus was exercising demons. That Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And John was confused. Where's the warrior? Where is the warrior? We know that the message of Jesus' life, of his ministry, was that God is no longer at war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Matthew told us that Jesus had come to fulfill the words of Isaiah. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus came not to wage war against flesh and blood, but to confront the darkness. And to go to battle against the lords of the lands of the shadow of death. To free his people. Because Jesus' war wasn't waged against flesh and blood, his weapons weren't human weapons. You remember in the garden when they came and arrested Jesus. And one of his disciples, Peter, pulls out his, his little dagger and slices off the ear of one of the men there. What does Jesus tell him? Put that away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And Jesus told him and the rest of his disciples, if I need it, do you think I need your help? Do you think I need your help? I could call 12 legions of angels down at this moment. But listen to what he said. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus did not need human weapons to defeat the powers of darkness. The spiritual battle between God and his enemies is won not through killing, but by dying. By dying. The warrior Jesus came to confront the spiritual powers of darkness, to defeat evil, bring justice, liberate his people, establish his kingdom by giving up his life. And rising again. And in doing so, he declared victory. 
That's what we proclaim this morning. That's why this morning is important. It's because we are rejoicing in the fact that though we are still in the battle, the war has been won. That Jesus came and defeated the powers of darkness once and for all. Look at these words from the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 2. Listen to this language. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's battle language. Jesus came and by his death disarmed, defeated, and humiliated his enemies. Look at these words from Ephesians chapter 4. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Jesus defeated and humiliated his enemies. And then Jesus is marching through the city in a victory parade. And those of us who follow Jesus are in this parade and we are sharing in his victory spoil. This is the victory. This is war language. This is battle language. But Jesus did not come to wage war against flesh and blood. He defeated the powers of darkness. And finally, these words. These familiar words from 1 Corinthians 15. This is the victory song. Those of us marching through the city, behind our warrior, our conquering king, are singing this song. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the celebration. This is our song. This is the reality that we live in. Jesus won the war between God and His enemies. But the truth is, the victory is an already not yet event, if you're familiar with that language. Already, but not yet. And what that means is that we taste this victory now. We get a glimpse of this victory now. We see the kingdom of God now. But it's incomplete. It's incomplete. This victory was secured by Jesus' death and resurrection. And this victory will be consummated. The final denouement when Jesus returns again. I want to leave you with two things as we close. I mentioned this just a couple of minutes ago. Even though the war is won, the reality is we are still in the we are still in the battle. I can't help but thinking of Daniel and how much our experience in this world mirrors his. We are deeply troubled. We are worn out. We are grieving. We are wounded by our enemy. We see and experience the battle all around us. The wars, the corruption, the poverty, the death. We carry the scars of this battle in ourselves 
and in the relationships that we have, addiction, abuse, broken lives, broken relationships. We live with the effects of evil each and every day. With the reality that our enemy is stealing and killing and destroying. Even though the war is won, we are still in the battle. But folks, I want us to take comfort this morning that our warrior God, who came and defeated sin and evil and death, was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Our God did not stay distant. Our God was not disengaged. Our God is not far removed. He is God with us. He is God with us. He is a God who came near, a God who suffered, and a God who died. I don't know what you're experiencing this morning or what you're bringing into this place, but I want you to know that on Easter morning, we can be comforted by knowing that our God is here, that we are not alone. Even though the war is won, we are still in the battle, but... The end is in sight. The end is in sight. Those words, those victor, that victory song that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 is followed by an exhortation. We sing about the victory over sin and death. So brothers and sisters, stand firm. Be confident, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. Even though the war is won, we don't sit back and relax. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And we join God in building and developing that kingdom here. We fight. We enter this battle. And we fight against sin and evil. We fight against it in here. We fight against it in here and we fight against it out there. We fight against it as Jesus did. Not with human weapons or with human conventions. But we heal the sick. We exercise demons. And we proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. Folks, we rejoice this morning in hope. In hope. We don't know when the end will come. But we know why it is coming. Because Jesus Christ has won the victory. I love these words from C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles. He writes, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. That's why we proclaim the gospel changes everything. As we come to our time of communion this morning, 
I want to extend an invitation. You may be here this morning, and you may not be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you this morning to come and to follow Him. Just as Jesus invited those men in the Gospels, follow me. Follow me. Come and see what he is about. Come and see the transformation that he can bring. Come and experience the life that you were created to live. Come and taste the kingdom of God. I invite you to do that this morning. For the rest of us, your invitation, my invitation is this. As we take our communion together, this isn't magic. This isn't some kind of, you know, thing that gets us in good with God that we just take it every week. This represents the body and the blood of Jesus shed for us. As we take it, we take it together because we know that we are not in this battle alone. God is with us, and we are with each other. We serve a risen Savior this morning. So let's do this this morning in remembrance of Him. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And thanks be to God, Christ is coming back again. Will you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. We worship you. You who left the riches and the glory to come here, to become like us, but to become the lowest form of us. That you are obedient even unto death. Death on the cross. We worship you. We worship that you are now seated at the right hand of your Father. That you are not in a grave. That you have not been defeated but that you have risen in victory. We long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Thank you that we can celebrate and worship and laugh and sing and cry this morning. pray that our fellowship here, Soma Northwest, would be a visible representation and proclamation that your kingdom has come and that your will is being done here on earth as it is in heaven. In your holy and glorious and majestic name, we pray.
Amen. Highways, you're the only one who 
I give him a hand clap of praise? Now, ultimately, at the end, after all of this ends, the main thing that we'll be worshiping is Christ and Jesus. So really, nothing really compares to that. So let's sing. Should nothing of our ever stand, no legacy survive. i 
Praise God. Yes. I am so glad that you've been here with us this morning. Um, just, yes, this is a fun morning. This is a great morning. And I hope that you've enjoyed this time. Um, as you walked in, as you look around, you probably noticed some little pots of begonias. And we would like, if you'd like to take one of those home with you, put it on your table at lunch with friends, with family, enjoy those flowers. Those are our gift to you this morning. Um, and yeah, if you don't have plans today, find somebody here. Go out to eat. Invite them over. This is a day of rejoicing, of feasting, of celebrating our victory. And we want you to do that today if you're able to do it. Um, a couple of things. If you would like to give this morning and, and drop a gift in our basket, we will have a basket out those double doors here. You could drop that gift in on your way out. Uh, if you're here visiting with us, we have no expectation that you would give. We're just so thankful for your presence with us this morning. Um, also, there is a connect card, a welcome card around the seats. Uh, if you have a need this morning, if you want some more information about our ministries or how to get connected, please fill that out um, and you can drop that in that basket as well. Let me send you out this morning with our benediction, our good word for the road. From 1 Peter chapter 1, hear these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Let us live this week in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, in our relationships. Let us live as people with hope, as people who live in victory. Peace be with you.